I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Our show today is Masks of Democracy. Our music sets the stage. Nefertiti off of the 1968 album of the same name by the Miles Davis Quintet. This one dubbed the Second Great Quintet and composed of Miles Davis on trumpet, Wayne Shorter, tenor saxophone, Herbie Hancock on piano, Ron Carter on bass, and Tony Williams on drums. In a piece called Jazz Democracy, a slate review of the complete Columbia studio recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet, January 1965 to June 1968, Adam Schatz writes, It's a commonplace that jazz is the musical expression of American democracy. The unfortunate truth is that jazz more often resembles the daytime talk show. Everyone gets his or her say before the floor passes to the next soloist. The Davis Quintet was the rare exception, a luminous example of participatory democracy in jazz. Of the song Nefertiti, the horn section repeats the melody numerous times without individual solos, while the rhythm section improvises underneath, reversing the traditional role of a rhythm section. It's been called a paradox. It ought to seem boringly repetitive, but even though the head is just repeated over and over, it's really never played exactly the same twice, especially by the rhythm section. The dynamics and the attitude are constantly shifting, ebbing and flowing, rising and falling. The theme is never presented the same way twice. Democracy, never presented the same way twice, is our topic tonight. Joining me live via Skype is Nicholas Xenos. Xenos is a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the director of the Amherst Program in Critical Theory. He's the author of Cloaked in Virtue, Unveiling Leo Strauss and the Rhetoric of American Foreign Policy, and Scarcity and Modernity, and has contributed essays and reviews to The Nation, Grand Street, the London Review of Books, and other periodicals. His most recent book is an edited volume of Sheldon Wolin's essays, Fugitive Democracy, just out from Princeton University Press. Nick Xenos, welcome to Interchange. Thank you. Uh, I think our primary task tonight, and it seems a kind of irony, is to find a way to define democracy away from our current conceptions. And in so doing, we'll also try to understand where it is we might come into contact with democracy, how we come to know what it is. To this end, we'll take a look at teaching and political science in theory and practice. But before we tackle this complicated task, Nick Xenos, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm, I teach at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I've been here since 1984. Before that, I was a fellow of the Society of Fellows in Humanities at Columbia University. Um, I had a long graduate student career <laughs> that began at uh, the University of Michigan, detoured through uh, York University in Canada, and wound up at Princeton University 
uh, where I studied with um, Sheldon Wallen. And, um, and in the early 80s, I was a managing editor of a political quarterly that was founded by Wallen called Democracy with a Small D. Uh, so uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Wolin then as a student of yours. Uh, uh, excuse me, as you were a student of his, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you worked closely with him and especially uh, uh, in regards to the journal as well. Yeah. So um, Sheldon Wolin was best known um, originally for a text called Politics and Vision, which he wrote in 1960, which was a kind of history of political theory. But it was an unusual history of political theory because it was sort of thematic rather than a kind of encyclopedia of, of uh, the history of political thought. Uh, it was rather a breakthrough at the time. It was quite an interpretive um, text. It was expanded uh, and uh, issued in a second edition in 2004. Mullen taught at, at, um, originally uh, at Oberlin and then at, at Berkeley, and it was at Berkeley that he became well-known both for this book, uh, Politics and Vision, and also because, um, which preceded the free speech movement at Berkeley, but also uh, for his role in the free speech movement and other political events at Berkeley in the late 60s, um, where he was uh, very much involved with faculty um, uh, support for the uh, free speech movement. Uh, he then moved briefly to University of California, Santa Cruz, and then came to Princeton, which was a uh, uh, let's just say an unfortunate marriage in a lot of ways uh, <laughs> uh, for reasons I suppose we could go into in, in greater detail but he was I would say uh, Wolin was a uh, public intellectual in the uh, uh, you know in the way the phrase is used he wrote uh, many essays in the New York Review of Books um, in the 1970s some essays he wrote for the New York Review with John Shar were published uh, about the Berkeley Student Rebellion and uh, Wolin wrote many other essays on Henry Kissinger and on Ronald Reagan. And partly because of his writing in the New York Review, he was, um, uh, he, he was tapped to become the editor of the journal uh, Democracy in 1980. And we published that for about three years. He asked me to be the managing editor. It was an effort to uh, have a public presence for a certain kind of political theorizing. It's a very difficult project, and we could talk more about that if you'd like to. Um, the small-d democracy was, of course, the, the critical part of that. Um, uh, but Wallen's, the, aside from that public uh, presence, um, one of his great contributions was as a teacher of, of graduate students, a teacher of generation of a couple of generations of political theorists. Um, he was a fabulous graduate, um, a graduate instructor. I learned a lot from him. Um, a lot of uh, people in my cohort and later. Uh, learned a lot from him, had a real serious impact. Uh, after leaving Princeton, when he retired in, uh, I think, around 1990-something, uh, he published several other books, um, including um, a, a book on Tocqueville called Tocqueville Between Two Worlds, The Making of a Political and Theoretical Life um, in 2001, which I think was actually quite uh, semi-autobiographical in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, and then a book that was meant for a more general audience uh, called Democracy Incorporated, mm -hmm. subtitle of which was Managed Democracy and the Specter of Inverted Totalitarianism. And that last part of that uh, caught quite a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah. Some of it 
interested in some of it on <laughs> well he uh, it's i it's the book that uh, brought him to my attention uh, and uh, if you recall i think chris hedges was all over the yes. uh, the press talking about this particular book alongside Moby Dick, of course. Um, yeah. So, uh, but uh, it is that book that that brought, like I said, brought him to my attention, and it is um, it's an important one, I think, in terms of trying to understand two things. Here, your your focus on public intellectuals, on political essays in popular, um, I guess, the New York Review of Books is popular in some. Uh, particular readership, right? Uh, it definitely has a, a, a an elite readership, maybe more than uh, a, a democratic readership, perhaps. But uh, the idea that uh, that you should be out in the the public sphere sphere trying to talk politics. Yeah, I mean, I think in the seventies, the New York Review was quite a different animal. Mm. Um, it published people not only like Mullen, but you know, Noam Chomsky and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, o- over time. It became much more, in my view, it became much more centrist, much more um, conservative in that sense, uh, much more Anglophile, a lot of uh, British uh, you know, uh, authors now. And around 1980 was when Mullen stopped writing in the New York Review of Books. Um, and I think it was when we founded Democracy, the journal. And I think it was um, the partly maybe a turn already that had occurred in the New York Review that made him jump at the opportunity to do this uh, quarterly uh, journal, hmm. um, which and I, I said it was a difficult thing to do because, uh, and this d- goes directly to the kind of um, you know, question you were raising, um, uh, most intellectuals <laughs> or most academics are not trained to write for a general audience. Um, journalists are, and we had a hard time getting journalists to write for the, uh, serious journalists to write for the journal because we weren't paying a whole lot of money. Um, and academics had a very difficult time, I think, um, writing in a kind of clear, non-jargony kind of way, trying to address contemporary issues. I think we were successful with, with several people, but it was it was not an easy task. And and that says something about the way in which political commentary, political uh, interpretation, um, has kind of moved, was moving out of the public realm in a lot of ways and into the into a more rarefied university setting. Mm, uh, that's in, a, a point you make uh, in a few of your pieces, uh, the the move into academia and into a kind of uh, continual subdivision of specialties and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's been partly a professionalization issue, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also, you know, I mean, it's also a kind of withdrawal from the political world, I think, mm-hmm. that was occurring in the 80s and 90s um, to some degree. Uh, but the specialization has a lot to do with it, and the, and the uh, professionalization of the academy hmm. has a lot to do with it. Can you, I know it's, uh, we, we've got about maybe three minutes before we take a break, but maybe you could sketch in, uh, if at all possible, inverted totalitarianism. Big, big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was a complicated idea, and, and one of Boland's attributes was that he, he was, his interpretation of things was very much dependent on uh, changing circumstances in the world. I mean, that's how he understood theory, engaging the d- changes in experience. And what he was trying to get at with both the notion of managed democracy and inverted totalitarianism was a fusion, as he saw it, of two forms of power, which was state power and capitalism. And when they come together, they form something that he thought was new. Hmm. Uh, democracy in that context becomes something that is, uh, I won't say false in some way, but it's, I mean, uh, as the phrase suggests, managed, mm-hmm. contained, 
uh, funneled in certain ways. And the inverted totalitarianism part of it was not to say that the United States was like Nazi Germany or something, but that there was a kind of um, popular uh, uh, base to a depoliticization. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he was really trying to, mm-hmm. to get at. And it really had to do with this, these two forms of power um, you know, coming together. Uh, at that point. But of course, you know, people jumped on the inverted totalitarianism sure. thing, said the guy's an extremist and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, we did talk uh, a little bit about the depoliticization. De- I can pronounce that depoliticization, something like that, of um, of the, I guess, the populace. Uh, I talked a little bit uh, with Wendy Brown, who I think was a student of Wolin's as well. Uh, and this was like the key key particulars of kind of a neoliberal uh, ability to distance the, the, the demos from, from actual political engagement. Yeah, and I think that Wolin's point, uh, Wendy, and by the way, she and I were graduate students at the same mm. time. Um, I think the key part of that is a kind of pantomime of democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. the appearance of it uh, in certain institutional forms, without it having any really substantive value, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, in a lot of ways, a, a kind of um, uh, cheapening of the term and the and the of democracy and the idea of democracy. So so that's that was part of Olin's uh, thing, uh, and I think it was an important uh, insight that he had. And uh, can you quickly then con- contrast managed democracy with the idea of fugitive democracy? Yeah. Um, so uh, in this context of a kind of managed political universe, um, and I should point out that political scientists played a big role in this kind of thing because, uh, you know, there was, as, as you may know, a period where there was a great deal of concern about too much political participation, mm. uh, you know, that that was detrimental somehow to stability. Um, and so, in that, in, so democracy or participation had to be managed in that way. Wolin thought that with the fusion of the, the, the capitalism and the power of the state, democracy could not be institutionalized, um, regularized, uh, contained, as you put it, within a constitution. But that democracy arose as a in moments of collective political action, and that those moments were the actual experience of democracy in which differences that people have would be not obliterated, but tra- I guess it's, it's transcended in some way in moments of common concern. And that those cannot be institutionalized. That once they became institutionalized, they would be subject to this kind of managerial control. Mm. It's uh, where the small d comes in in democracy. That's where the small d comes in. And I think that's where his experience uh, in the late 60s comes in. Okay. Well, it is time for a break. Uh, we'll go to that break with the Miles Davis Quintet again with Petit Mochon off the 1969 release Fali de Fille de Kilimanjaro. That's some butchering of my French there. The album has been called the jazz counterpart to the Beatles' revolver, defined as the best of the present and shades of the past and future all in the same place. And this song, translated as Little Stuff, a mosaic of controlled chaos. More with Nick Xenos on the chaos of democracy, controlled or otherwise, when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Masks of Democracy, and my guest is political science professor Nick Xenos. He's edited a collection of essays by the late Sheldon Wolin called Fugitive Democracy, just out from Princeton University Press. Before the break, we talked about... Well, we didn't talk about that. I skipped ahead. Um, we talked about Sheldon Wolin's uh, work as a political theorist, a, a public intellectual, and political essayist as well at the New York Review of Books and uh, the founding his journal uh, Democracy, small d, in the 80s, I think, 81, 80, 81, through not very long, 83 maybe. It was a short run, I think, and Nick, you can correct me on that. Um, for this a section. We're going to turn to uh, an essay you wrote, Nick, in 1988, I think, uh, published in Grand Street, Individual Character and Political Ethics. Um, as we continue now still to experience politics as kind of televisual bread and circus, and uh, if you recall, W deemed the CEO of America, I think your piece continues to be relevant, though it begins with Gary Hart, uh, a classic of political scandal that probably could re- be repeated every election cycle. <laughs> right. Yeah. See, so, yeah, that, that essay uh, was obviously um, um, a function of the particular circumstances that were uh, present at the time. It was it was Gary Hart had been caught on a boat <laughs> with Donna Rice, I mm-hmm. think was her name, um, and it was a big scandal at the time. And the question was over the uh, you know the stability of his uh, character and do you want a guy like this in the White House who can't control his appetites? Right, and right. And you talk particularly in that essay, you you make a a point of uh, the rhetoric of you know this guy with his finger on the on the button, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we've so, heard that plenty too recently, also. Well, we, we, yeah, we certainly have, and, yeah. and and not just recently. Right. Sure. Uh, as you may recall, and uh, when uh, when Obama was running for the uh, camp for the nomination against uh, Hillary Clinton, she ran ads about who do you want answering the phone? You know, answering right, right. phone at three o'clock in the morning with their finger on the button. Uh, because of his inexperience. But anyway, if we go back to the Gary Hart example, it, you know, I tried to understand what it was about this question of responsibility that, that kept coming up. The character factor is what kept being invoked. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, that what it had to do was, you know, this question of the guy with the finger on the button. And I, and I used that as the opportunity to talk about whether or not this was, I want to say realistic, but a way to think about the kind of responsibility that was in the that was present and how we think about the responsibility. And it seemed to me to be inappropriate in a way because the government state was essentially managed uh, bureaucracy. And in any bureaucracy, as we all know, it's really easy to deflect and defer responsibility. Uh, and in, in a bureaucratized university as well as anywhere else, you know, the, the department chair defers responsibility, you know, says it wasn't my decision, it was the dean. The dean says it wasn't my decision, it was the provost, you know, so on and, and, and stuff. And so, um, 
in one of the investigations of Ronald Reagan's mis misdeeds, for which he claimed responsibility and for which there was no no consequence, uh, he was described, I believe, as a as a kind of uh, uh, CEO. Mm -hmm. Now, so but the thing is, when when that was happening, if you asked people, you know, what was a what what represented corporate America, said IBM or General Motors or something like that. And, and I think the situation has changed because uh, what I think Trump represents, among other things, is a, is a changed attitude towards um, uh, business in a lot of ways. So we don't have, it's not IBM and despite Rex Tillerson, uh, you know, ExxonMobil that, that is in the White House um, it's it's um, we have a change in in the world. We we would now think about Google or Amazon or Apple, um, and the entrepreneur is the key figure, not the CEO. Um, and so we valorize, and culture seems to valorize the entrepreneurial figure, which was a bad word thirty years ago. You called somebody an entrepreneur; it was kind of a negative thing. Hmm. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, in his you know sort of classic book on socialism, capitalism, and democracy. Uh, contrasted the two figures of the of the growing centralized large corporation with his bureaucratic structure and then the entrepreneur and he thought the entrepreneur was going to disappear from capitalism and that was a bad thing well he seems to have come back in in spades hmm. and so at one level it seems that Trump represents this spirit of somebody who is a businessman in a more kind of let's say creative untrammeled uncontrolled way as compared to the the head of a corporation who's gotten there by rising within a bureaucracy. Hmm. The, the contrast between, I saw this, someone made this comment, and I think it was a good one, between, in the sort of face-off now between Trump and Comey, that Comey is a bureaucratic fighter hmm. who has succeeded by rising through the uh, Washington bureaucracy, and Trump is the outsider, mm -hmm. right, the sort of unconstructed one. And, and I'm guessing Trump, Comey's going to win that one because it's a, you know, the state is a that bureaucratic right, institution. Right. That's the so institutional, right? Right. But now I would think about it in somewhat different, different terms, trying to make sense out of this Trump phenomenon. <laughs> and good luck for 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 your <laughs> activities doing that. Um, this is that is interesting. Uh, I, I had not really thought about the the history of trying to understand the entrepreneur as a negative character, uh, almost. Um, perhaps fitting within that uh, uh, con man ethos that we that we attach to Trump, at least, uh, and a lot of our charismatic figures in public. Right. Even uh, even our great CEOs are are con men, right? Uh, I mean, Steve Jobs a bit of a con man, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's an that's an example of this changed notion of CEO, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Because he left, you know, he was sort of forced out of the company, and then he came back as the savior, and it was his. I mean, he's highly valorized mm -hmm. now, right? right? His vision and the vision he imposed on the institution, rather than representing a kind of tradition within an institution that you just carry forward mm -hmm. in a local corporation. Well, these are interesting terms. We're going to get to those terms too: uh, institutions, uh, traditions. You know, the things that we try to associate with how we arrange ourselves politically. Um, you know, thinking about corporations too. I, I, I uh, you. There's like a split in my mind between a, something like post-World War II, 50s era corporations that you see as almost benign, uh, benevolent, good goodwill, you know, acting for the greater good, creating social security administrations and things like that. And then and then the, the drastic change 
that we seem to be, and maybe I'm wrong in terms of trying to understand that, but you do get a sense that people were believing the corporation was the right way to organize. Yeah, and I mean, I think that had to do with um, probably the transition from the uh, the war economy, mm-hmm. the second war economy, uh, which is highly centralized and bureaucratized in that way, into the big, you know, and, you know, at the time, popular culture was both sort of laudatory about it, but also was the man in the great flannel sloop kind of thing. Oh, right, right. right. That, that kind of repetitive, um, you know, Jack Lemmon in the, in the insurance company mm-hmm. and, the, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, but there were defined benefit pensions and people identified to some degree with the, with the well-being of the, of the corporation, at least, in, you know, some elements of the working class. It's quite different now. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, you know the decline of the of the uh, corporate pensions mm-hmm. and uh, and the kind of flex flex work and all of those right. kinds of things that destabilized right. all of that. Yeah, there's the the entrepreneurial uh, a- aspect again. Is you you're the uh, corporation of yourself and and yeah. you you are always trying to negotiate your your work life within that that corporate body that no longer is housing you so much anymore. <laughs> Right, and in fact, you know, we now speak of the academic entrepreneur. Mm, oh gosh, yes. It's um, universities, and right. including public universities, that the uh, that the academic will be an entrepreneur, will mm. seek funds right. from sources, and and this is again not a not a bad word. I mean, it's meant as right. a positive thing. Right. Now, you in the title of that piece, you, you, you mentioned political ethics, and so there's a shift then between an institutional bureaucratic ethic that that you might say Comey uh, is a part of or, or exemplifies now versus a Trump uh, and whatever a political ethic that person might have? Well, I mean, I think uh, the contrast I was trying to make in that article, I guess, mm-hmm. was had to do with this notion of responsibility. And, and so we have uh, a professional ethics mm-hmm. uh, have developed as an entire field. And what that does is it talks about best practices in a particular area or something. And we have government ethicists and medical ethicists and all of those sorts of things and but it does seem to me that that's itself become a kind of bureaucratized mm-hmm. operation where you have these general principles in this particular circumstance and that has very little to do with um, with the notion of some kind of notion of individual responsibility mm. um, and and I don't and I'm not sure that I want to endorse the idea of individual responsibility because in structures structured institutions we sometimes want to uh, in other circumstances, blame individuals for what are structural issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the uh, financial crisis might be one of those things, right? We want to find out who to point the finger to, you know, scapegoat in a lot of ways, whereas it was a kind of mentality or a collective uh, um, problem rather than uh, than finding the person who is responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, as so I do think this issue of, of responsibility when it applies to either large corporations, bureaucracies, or the state, is a very vexed one. We want to, it's, it's going to have to do with this liberalism and democracy issue that I know you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, we, we may be using a language of individual responsibility for which there's really no correlate uh, at the moment. Mm. In fact, it may confuse things. That's it's generally how I feel. It's time for another break. This is uh, the, we're going to listen to Circle off of Miles Smiles and Exquisite Waltz, showcasing Davis's lyrical muted trumpet playing. More with Nick Sanos on the dance of democracy when Interchange returns on WFHB. <laughs>
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. That was The uh, Circle off of Miles Smiles on the Miles Davis Quintet, the second great quintet. My guest tonight, Nick Xenos, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, author of Cloaked in Virtue, Unveiling Leo Strauss and the Rhetoric of American Foreign Policy, and most recently editor of Fugitive Democracy, a collection of Sheldon Wolin's essays. Uh, Nick, uh, let's examine some terms you call oxymorons, uh, like civic nationalism and liberal democracy. Um, first, let's uh, maybe we'll look at the idea of what uh, national nationalism is and whether there's such a thing as a good nationalism and a bad nationalism. <laughs> sure. Um, that's... Uh... I think this was also a problem in the 1990s, and mostly coming out of the breakup of the Soviet uh, Union and the Soviet uh, domination of Eastern Europe, and the Balkan uh, Wars at the time. Michael Ignatieff, I think, was partly responsible uh, for popularizing some of this. Uh, there was an effort to say, well, you know, it looks like well, nationalism sometimes uh, seems to have a positive effect. It was the sort of positive nationalisms that that came out of the breakup of the Soviet Union. But that other times it gets ugly and nasty. And so um, this has been discussed before, the efforts to make a distinction between a kind of uh, ethnic nationalism and some other kind of uh, civic nationalism. So in this, that was the case here. This, so this civic nationalism was the thing that I uh, wanted to sort of examine. Uh, that combination of two, of things, and and I don't think there's a meaningful um, difference here, and the reason I don't is because um, uh, ideas about national identity are largely m- mythical. Mm-hmm. They're large, you know, they're construction out of out of various kinds of uh, images, and when I examine the images that are deployed in rhetoric in the speech around civic nationalism, they looked very similar to those that are deployed around ethnic nationalism. And by that, I mean things like uh, basically the transference of um, domestic uh, sort of images onto collective entities so that we speak of a national family or we speak of a national home or we speak of our nation or a place as a neighborhood. Um, Those kinds of uh, images are really very hard to, d- to distinguish, it seems to me, from some of the 
images that are deployed to talk about an ethnic uh, family or an you know an ethnic community one way or, or the other. Um, and the ethnic ones tend to be rather stronger, I think, emotionally. Um, so this question of nationalism, um, I think, is a really important and interesting one, uh, especially the resurgence of nationalism mm-hmm. that last thirty years, because that was supposed to be something we were transcending. Uh, I, I think it's a very complicated phenomenon that, more in general, has to do with a kind of senses of uh, uprootedness, of uh, transience, of change in the world, and then an effort to try to secure something stable, something that can be transformed or thought about in kind of a natural kind of way. And that's why we use these uh, these images born f- from things like uh, family relations or kinship relations. Uh, and so, you know, liberal politicians, too, will speak of the American family. Um, the rhetoric of uh, of Lincoln, our fathers, you know, brought forth on this continent, that, that kind of rhetoric, those kinds of images tell me something, <laughs> which is that, you know, it's basically all mythologizing. Uh, and, um, and I think dangerous in the sense that one thinks one can counter uh, you know, one set of images with another set of images. Hmm. Well, um, what what struck me in, yeah. in particular in in the essay is, uh, I think it was Ignatieff who who was uh, trying to posit the idea of uh, a civic nationalism that is tolerant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it was that, that that was the difference. You know, that one nationalism was intolerant and the other nationalism was tolerant. Right. So what what you get now are um, um, phenomena of right-wing uh, anti-immigrant politicians mm-hmm. who uh, are nationalists and and, uh, and then criticize and want to uh, reject or expel um, uh, Muslims on the grounds that they are intolerant. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the good form is tolerant, <laughs> but it's tolerant of everything right. except, <laughs> you know, and so it, it plays, I mean, I think, it plays in all kinds of um, all kinds of directions. Yeah, I just I think um, you know I have yet to see a tolerant nationalism. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight figures uh, attempts to figure out what we mean when we talk about democracy. My guest Nick Xenos, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, so I was trying to imagine myself. Um, trying to understand patriotism, nationalism, things of that nature. As a, uh, I'm a Midwest. I'm a Midwesterner, right? I, um, I'm from Illinois. I live in Indiana. You know, you try to create these kind of identity spaces. And Kurt Vonnegut made lots of fun of these things already. Uh, great Indiana author. Um, these are our, I think, our grand faloons. Most, most maybe what he called them. Uh, n- might not be right. I can't remember. Someone will tell me. Uh, but but one of the things that's argued in this in this essay too, or or in trying to understand how we love where we're from, you know, love our places, you know, is is kind of what what the place means to you. And it's not that you love America per se. If you if you love anything about where you're from, you love the streets, you love the geography, you love the buildings, you love the experiences you have in those places. Right, I think that's right. Right, so you're turning a, a, a you know a, a space into a place, and mm-hmm. that is, you know, you 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 identify with a particular place. But let's think about those. Okay, so I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I live in Massachusetts, um, and so my experience, I think, is probably rather well different than. Mm-hmm. 
So the neighborhood, uh, you know, so we always talk about urban neighborhoods. And the neighborhood that I was a child in, in Brooklyn at the time, was largely Italian. Uh, there were some Greeks, uh, some other, you know, white ethnics around or something. That same neighborhood today has a large uh, Arab population. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the adjoining neighborhood was Swedish at the time that I was a child. It then became uh, mostly Puerto Rican, and now it's mostly Mexican. And there's a whole Chinatown sort of uh, phenomenon in that area. So neighborhoods change. Mm-hmm. Urbans, ur, you know, I don't, we, we, we turn them into these fixed things. But our actual experience ought to be an experience of constant change rather than this kind of fixed thing that people then go back to as the core, you know, experience. And, um, you know, there's probably a lot of explanations for why we do that. Change is unsettling. Um, We are many of us unsettled. You're from Illinois and you live in Indiana. I'm from New York and I live in Massachusetts. A lot of us have moved around. Mm -hmm. Uh, America is an abstraction. Right. I mean, it's real abstraction. Uh, when New York was uh, hit by 9-11, suddenly New York became an American city, whereas before that I thought most of America hated New York. Uh, <laughs> New York was a global, uh, right. a kind of global city. It turns right. its back on the rest of the country. So, so you know, we, I think we conjure these things for various reasons of bear. Now, there's no doubt that, you you know, you can become attached to a particular piece of land somewhere or something like that but even that changes over time so the 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 language i guess my problem with both patriotism and nationalism and i don't think there's a big difference between them, by the way um is that we turn these changeable things into uh ossified uh things that become uh you know uh, solidified in our memory and in our rhetoric and that make it very difficult for us to uh kind of uh accept uh, change. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's that ch- and I think we're experiencing a lot of that in America right now. Right. Well, it's uh, it's one of those things again that um, you when you when you talked about the the actual physical space changing, the place changes, and how when we experience that, I'm not sure how much we experience the change if we continue to live in a space or if the space no longer becomes ours. You can see already as you talk about it, the way that people become disgruntled with the changes in their life if their neighborhoods change while they stay in them. If you leave your neighborhood, your neighborhood can remain its nostalgic way it was, right? You can imagine the bucolic neighborhood you had or the terrible neighborhood you had if that's what it was. But we're stuck in that sort of memory space if if our neighborhood is just what we grew up in you know, what we created as the, the imagined space of youth and then how it changes as we, as we live in it. And, and, you know, all these things become clashes of what we expect our lives to, I guess, remain, as you talk about, you know, that, that change is forced upon us in those ways. And, and so what is it that we, what can we hold stable then? You know, the, the myth does create that stability in some sense, right? It does, and the phenomenon that you were describing there is characteristic of emigrant communities. Uh, you know, my grandparents who came from Greece had a very, uh, very fixed idea of what of the of the Greece that they left, which they embellished over time, right? Mm-hmm. And thought sure. it's a wonderful thing, and and I think was hot when they finally went back there. Uh, you know, uh, and it wasn't what they what they imagined it you know uh, to be. Yeah, I think this is uh, this uh, stability. Um, 
you know, I think it's just something we have to live with, right? Right. right. Uh, and of course, the intellectually, it's easy enough to say that we're all, uh, you know, that homelessness. I think Nietzsche said was a precondition for philosophy or something right, like. Right. You know, and free-floating intellectuals has always been a bad thing. Uh, cosmopolitans have been a bad thing in the sense because they don't have any. Um, uh, Adam Smith decried the merchant because he said the merchant has no country. Hmm. Uh, and could you know go anywhere, and that's why landed property for him was so important. Um, and land has been important uh, for property rights and, and citizenship rights and things like that. Um, I you know as a as a thinker about these things, I, it, it's easy to say um, n- nothing stays the same, and we have to. Um, ex- it's not you leave the past behind, but one has to understand the changes that. Are, taking place in the world and try to get control over some of them as an individual it's extremely difficult but collectively we may try to get control mm-hmm. over some of them but look at the i mean these are massive changes as i say my grandparents came from from greece i came from new york massachusetts my son uh lives in uh amsterdam and my grand my granddaughters are dutch citizens <laughs> so it's a, i'm part of that international cosmopolitan elite that this election was partly a reaction against. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not to say, but the the part, the the stable world that's contrasted to that is a myth. (laughs) It's not that stable. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to come to uh, understand that and try to come to terms with the forces that are introducing change. Mm. Well, it's time for another break and another from the second great quintet of Miles Davis. This is Agitation off of the 1965 album ESP. Agitation opened every set on the quintet's 1967 European tour. We'll return with more political agitation with our guest Nick Xenos when Interchange returns on WFHB. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. That, again, was Agitation from Miles Davis Quintet off the 1965 album ESP. I'm joined via Skype by Nick Sanos, all, uh, excuse me, editor of Fugitive Democracy, a book of essays by the late Sheldon Wolin. Uh, we went, went to the break. We were talking about uh, oxymorons of political uh, description, I suppose, one being civic nationalism, as if, as if there was a way to be, uh, I guess, uh, a kinder, gentler nationalists. Um, but let's, uh, let's unmask another one of these, uh, Nick, if you would, uh, and in particular, liberal democracy comes under your uh, withering pen. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think liberal democracy is an oxymoron. It's a modern invention. Um, I understand liberalism, I guess, a liberal attitude to be about uh, individualism, individual rights, and to have an individual focus about the rule of law as a uh, basically a structure of property rights, uh, more or less, or uh, laws that uh, protect uh, you know individuals in some capacity. Democracy, I think, is something else, and um, uh, and th- without getting too um, sort of academic about it, uh, the the demos that's in democracy, I think, is important uh, to take note of. Um, and when when in fifth century Athens, when the sort of notion of democracy was first articulated in a lot of ways, um, that what the demos was was not is not clear to us now. Um, it can mean everyone, or it could mean the common people, probably meant the common people, as compared to the sort of aristocrats uh, or the aristocratic families uh, in Athens. Um, and I, I cling to that idea, that that is the demos uh, is about, about common people and uh, in opposition. So it's an oppositional term. It does, it's, it, democracy is not open the space for... Um, it opens the space for common people to participate and to be, uh, to act, and to act in a collective way. So one of the things I understand between the difference between democracy and liberalism, and maybe just me, is that democracy is about a collectivity. Liberalism is about individuals. And liberalism is about certain kind of structures and institutions, some of which are meant to contain the demos. I was talking about in some ways this managed democracy mm-hmm. earlier. Democracy, historically, was a, thought by political theorists to be a negative. At best, the best of the worst forms of government. It's only in the modern period that it's become this positive thing, and everybody's a Democrat, and nobody's opposed to it. And if everybody's a Democrat, and nobody's opposed to it, then there's something wrong, it seems to me, um, uh, in that sort of consensus. Um, and so I think, and this is, you know, this is just speculative, obviously, on my part, but I think what we're witnessing may be a clash between democracy and liberalism uh, at this moment. 
in some of the phenomena that go by the name of populism, hmm. one place or another. So a sort of collective uh, response or assault on institutions that we associate with liberal institutions rather than than democratic institutions, um, including representative government um, and representative institutions in general. Um, it's been said that you know the notion of democracy these days is is rests on a a fabrication, which is that the people are sovereign and the people rule. And we know that the people don't rule as a people. Uh, representatives do, uh, or institutions of one kind, uh, populated in many cases, unelected officials who are, as we talked about, bureaucrats when we're in this is particularly an issue in Europe at the present time. Um, and so, uh, and I think much of the reaction to Trump and to even Sanders, but particularly the Trump phenomenon here and things that get labeled populism in Europe is a fear of the uh, weakening of, of liberal institutions. But those liberal institutions may be the constraining things, the, the, the structures that have imposed uh, decisions and imposed constraints on, com on the sort of common people, for want of a better word, and have exactly created the kinds of situation that currently uh, currently exists. So I think there's a tension in liberal democracy, I think many people will recognize it, but I think it's an oxymoron. I think that it's more than a tension. I think there's actually an opposition. Hmm. Well, it gets lumped into those confusing terms for me also. So if we stick with this country, obviously, and we try to imagine how we see democracy play out in our elections, um, if, if we want to call it you know, that, that managed democracy, if uh -huh. anything. We, we get two teams playing against each other. We get uh, Democrats and uh, uh, conservatives, uh, Republicans, I guess we call them, rather than conservatives. And then I already get confused, right? So what's a Republican? Is there a, a liberal Republican? Is there a conservative Democrat? And, and are these labels that matter and how they matter uh, does that matter? Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that we continue to sort of just thrust ourselves uh, against this wall of, of, of taking sides and trying to understand what it is that I stand for if I'm politically a Democrat, politically a Republican, politically for markets. Uh, um, these kinds of things just continue, I think, to confound us as a, uh, a political cohort. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, I, I don't think that much of the public discourse really helps to try to make sense out of these things because these categories become ossified one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that, in, whether it's in popular media or news media, uh, those two, that's the opposition. We have, we have de liberals and Democrats. Um, liberals, um, so we have liberals, liberals and uh, conservatives, rather. Democrats and Republicans. These are the range of possible politics right. uh, that we have. And anything that falls outside of that norm is what we call populist. Hmm. So we say yeah. that there are populists on the right and populists on the left. In the last uh, you know, year, it was the Trump supporters on the right and the Sanders supporters on the, on the left. Um, although the, you know, the Sanders ones were are trying to operate within the Democratic Party, which I think is really highly became highly problematic mm -hmm. for a, a lot of reasons. So the it, part of the problem is that we have this bipolar kind of way of understanding where where we're at, and and um, uh, you know political scientists fall into that, academics fall into it all the time. Like political scientists do, 
um, they define almost every issue as either a liberal or a conservative issue, and they plot things in those ways as if there are only two alternatives to anything, and it, and it's constrained within it. The the sociologist, political German sociologist, political economist um, uh, Wolfgang Wolfgang Streich uh, calls this Tina. Uh, th- there there is no alternative. The the part, group of there is no alternative, so that we stay within these categories. And I think that creates the kind of confusion you're talking about because you have to you have to sort of stick everything in one of those boxes, and there are things that just don't fit in a box <laughs> like that. And um, actually, I think probably things are much more diverse than they appear to be in terms of people's motivations and opinions. We tend to want to find the middle. Uh, we valorize. I'm, I'm saying this very broadly. Valorize the middle of the road uh, consensus in the middle. Jim Hightower, the, who was a Texas populist and mm-hmm. a positive sense of the word Texas populist, said the only thing in the middle of the road is a dead armadillo. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I find that kind of conflict uh, much more productive. <laughs> mm, <laughs> a lot. Um, and so the movement towards the towards the extremes, I don't think, is particularly uh, harmful to our uh, understanding maybe shakes up this kind of consensus notion that we have that everything falls into one of these boxes. Hmm. Well, uh, you do tend to, uh, I guess, lean towards a conservative perspective if you're looking for consensus all the time. You're looking for a way not to shake up the world. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, this goes back actually, in a lot of ways, uh, very complicated ways to the earlier discussion we were having about people and in, about instability. Instability makes people. Uh, uncomfortable, mm-hmm. obviously, um, and it's. I think that's gotten maybe worse because uh, this sort of social uh, net underneath people has been uh, eroded, so that m- for many, many people now, your future, your well-being is dependent on yourself. Mm. There are no social structures right. that can, you know, and then you, and so that leads to kind of collective, individual and collective anxiety. Uh, and angst, and I think uh, a lot of the anger and and um, f- frustration and sort of um, you know uh, emotional lashing out in various directions is a, is a function of that. Our politics is 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 centrist, but it is um, bipolar at the same time. So that you have that overlapping consensus, which some liberal political philosophers like John Rawls uh, thought was was a proper thing. That overlapping consensus. Well, uh, it's time for another break. We're going to listen to Riot off of Nefertiti by the Miles Davis Quintet, written by Herbie Hancock. More on the unruly facets of democracy with Nick Xenos when Interchange returns on WFHB. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. I'm your producer and host. Our show is The Masks of Democracy. My guest is Nick Xenos, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, editor most recently of Fugitive Democracy, a collection of Sheldon Wolin's essays published by Princeton University Press. Uh, We went to the break talking about the oxymoron of liberal democracy, and I wanted to actually... I suppose try to tie some of that back to some earlier uh, uh, bits of conversation we had. We talked a little bit about responsibility, um, about bureaucracies sort of not allowing responsibility in some ways, being confused with individualism within that space as well. And um, But I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, the kind of dissident nature of, of the political programs in the, uh, I think you, you mentioned Eastern Europe at one point, uh, that, you know, dissidents and, and opposition to the state, to the state power, and and trying to you know create certain goals and and trying to uh, achieve certain things within that political organization that had nothing to do with the state itself, other than being in opposition to the state. Yeah, that was uh, again a very particular point period of time, and, a, and a, an ironic one in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the anti-political politics. Um, the idea, it was Václav Havel was the great figure at the center of this. And uh, the idea was that the conference, you couldn't uh, defeat the state, the totalitarian state in this case. You couldn't defeat the state head on, that it could absorb and deflect and, and you know, its repressive power was too great. So you constructed an alternative civil society. That was the idea. Hmm. And it worked kind of outside, try to work outside the state structures, but you don't challenge directly state power or try to acquire state power. The great irony is that Václav Havel became president of, the, <laughs> of Czechoslovakia and then and then presided over the um, divorce of the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was successful by being, you know, in a way it didn't want to be successful. Uh, politics. Yeah, and it was, a, yeah, that's right. And, and so, you know, at the time, my idea was, well, the democratic moment in all of that was the process by which the Prague Spring was happening and the the um, uh, the process by which the state power was being challenged and the collective nature of the challenge that was placed uh, to it. And then once once the regime fell and Havel became president, then you went back to kind of normal politics. And he was forced, I think, by being president at that point to make to do something that he would have opposed as a dissident, would have opposed as an outsider. Now many people will say, well it's easy to be a dissident. It's harder to be a responsible person, you know, uh, who's responsible for the decisions that, that are being made. I guess I want to question whether or not an individual is so responsible for an institution like the state and rather than following a kind of logic that one has to follow. I think that we might be watching Trump so, sort of having to deal with the fact that there are logics that he can't oppose, really. Um, and, and what I worry about, I guess, is that we have a tendency to want to find a savior one way or another. So, you know, Obama was that for a lot of people, and, and the promise of hope. And But in power, there are decisions that are pre, you know, preset, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, by the state, by the powers that constitute the state, by the uh, influence, as we talk a lot about the influence of big money on the state and all of that, on politicians and all that kind of thing. So, well, I think we want to cling to an idea of individual responsibility there, where we're really dealing with a, 
with a beast that has its own kind of logic. So people feel, and I, I, you know, I understand what goes on, that if they can get into government, they can turn the in a positive way. I think there's very little evidence for that. Um, there are programs and policies that mitigate certain problems um, and uh, that exacerbate other ones. And there's a little flow back and forth between those things. We're seeing some of that now uh, going on um, between another but they're really pretty incremental I think in the big picture and I do think what moves that beast if anything does is pressure power that's displayed and organized outside the state that that, that the state uh, or state institutions respond to pressure that comes from outside uh, I think that's true for civil rights legislation. I think that's true for uh, um, civil rights legislation in a variety of, of ways. Um, and I think that was what was going on in Eastern Europe at the same time. There was this, so it's it's hard. I'm not saying that people should not get involved in poli- you know in, in traditional politics or uh, elections or something like that. But I think that one has to understand the limited nature of what can be accomplished there, and more can probably be accomplished. Uh, by collective action outside the, for- the formal state structures, or at least on a more decentralized local level hmm. that puts pressure on those government institutions from the outside. Uh, there are many disillusioned individuals who you know, went into government offices another and came out. Uh, this is Doug Storm. Our show tonight attempts to figure out what we mean when we talk about democracy. My guest is Nick Xenos, professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's joining us by Skype and a little bit moving in and out of our hearing sometimes, so we apologize for that. Well, that's okay. Um, so let's shift a little bit to try to understand these uh, institutions that in some ways, as you say, would block our, our interest in changing those those state institutions themselves. And liberalism is one is the one thing that you kind of posit as as these these the creation of these institutions that that both seem to give us a particular hope to uh, achieve the best in freedom and liberty and expression and and the ability to become ourselves, but they they do the, their best to block that as well in many ways. Um, and uh, you you wrote a piece called "Liberalism and the Postulate of Scarcity," which I thought was pretty fascinating. And and I know it's it's maybe more complex, although I think it's pretty simply done. Uh, I think the the essay made it seem pretty simple to me. So so hopefully it, hopefully it will be. But you posit scarcity is is kind of the beginning of these institutions or the idea of scarcity? Yeah, uh, it's probably is a simple idea, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a... Uh, in, in liberal political thought, and I'm thinking here of, of David Hume in the 18th century, John Rawls in the 20th, uh, they posit scarcity as one of the pre-existing conditions in order for politics or notion of justice to even make sense. Uh, the idea there is that there has to be um, some um, limitations such that an idea of justice is necessary to sort things out one way or the other. And we, we tend to, um, in the modern period, uh, understand the world a priori as a world that's constituted by scarcity, so that we have decisions that have to be made. This is the economist in all of us mm-hmm. as, as we confront the world. Um, 
what, what I believe to be the case is that this notion of a universal scarcity is, is, is a modern uh, concept, that there was no such notion before uh, the 18th century, for the most part. Um, I, got, I, I was sort of led to this view by the work of some anthropologists, um, Marshall Sollins, who wrote a very famous essay called The Original Affluent Society, which was about hunting and gathering societies. And Carl Polanyi, who wrote about pre-capitalist societies uh, in, in various um, uh, essays and in his book, um, The Great Transformation. Um, what this, uh, and what it's the simple idea is that scarcity is not, in my view, uh, a function of finitude, but rather a function of demand or desire. So that things aren't scarce because there's a limited number of them. Things are scarce because we want more of what there is than there are as a limited number for us. So, you know, if you postulate a universal scarcity, um, then economics is, is, your, is your tool. That's what economics is about, or at least some versions of economics. It's about distributing your desires among competing uh, wants and deciding what, because you can't satisfy everything, what it is that you want to satisfy. Um, I think that uh, this notion of universal scarcity is itself a function of a commercial society, a market society, capitalist society, however you want to function it, uh, describe it, which produces an ever-increasing set of needs, uh, wants and desires that become essentially needs, so that we're constantly out, uh, you know, outrunning finitude <laughs> um, by inventing new things uh, that then become... Uh, scarce, hmm. and uh, they become scarce probably by putting a price on them, um, and and establishing a market for them. Uh, I think quite. I mean, economists who might be listening to this are, would, you know, about to cut their wrists at me, hearing me talk like this. Uh, but but that's my that's the basic idea. That oil, for example, was not scarce until oil became something we wanted and try and had a need for. It was sitting there all that time without being understood as scarce. It was. It was finite, but not scarce. So that when we think about the world as constituted by scarcity, we get caught up in an economistic logic, in a logic of, of competition, of logic of desire and consumption. That's the society we live in. Mm -hmm. And so we experience things as, as a general condition of scarcity. So in this case, all I'm trying to do, and all I'm trying to do right now, is say that things that we take for granted as being universal, as being uh, transhistorical, have a history. That, they, that our, our needs and wants and desires are constituted by particular social relationships at particular times and particular ways. And so that we need a more uh, concrete way to understand what kinds of needs and desires our society produces that it cannot satisfy and how the society moves, keeps moving on the basis of the generation of new needs and desires. Um, uh, that, that's the basic premise, and it's a, you know, as I say, it's a relatively sim simple one, but I think it's a correct one. Yeah, I, I found it pretty fascinating. Um, um, but as much as you as you walk through the creation of this this idea from Adam Smith and and David Hume, and as you say, on through 
Marx and Mill and on to Keynes and Rawls as well. Um, but this idea that we create these, these scarcity, uh, like economics is a creation of scarcity in some sense, a creation of desire and needs that, that the only thing, uh, I think you quote Carl, Carl, is it Carl Menger? Um, you quote him as basically saying that, you know, economics only exists for things that are scarce. If it's something in abundance, it's not an economic, it's a non-economic entity then. Right. Which, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, what are what are those things? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could create a market for those right, things as right. well. I mean, we privatization of waters or whatever. Right, uh, right. And, you know, I, the other way to think about it, how to deal with this, with scarcity situations is reduce demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a simple sort of solution, right? Um, uh, that's a problem because how does one reduce demand? You can do it by issuing laws that restrict access to something or other, or through individual choice. Uh, I think that's that's an open sort of question, but it's the proliferation of, of, because the other part of what I want to say, the political part of that, is to say that the alternative to this that kind of competition of resources is redistribution. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a finite amount of stuff, we're going to redistribute it. Uh, equally, right. you know, so if one stops thinking about a society as constantly struggling to, and I'm talking about advanced industrial societies mm-hmm. that we experience scarcity. I'm not talking about societies that are barely subsistence or something. We experience you know, some lack, something we're kind of trying to fill um, with new things, one way or the other. Right. Uh, it keeps the society growing, but it keeps it growing unequally right and well, if one starts to understand it's the old limits to growth argument back that I'm really talking about from back in the 80s I guess um, if one starts really thinking about the limits that's not you know we we think of growth as this positive thing did the economy grow last quarter or did it not grow last quarter if we stop thinking about growth as the as an upper good, we might have to think about redistribution. Well, that's the last thing that political elites want us to think about. It's time for one last break. This is Masqualero from Miles Davis Quintet's album Sorcerer. This song has Herbie Hancock on piano and Ron Carter on bass, adapting the song's shape to the soloist, Miles Davis on trumpet, Wayne Shorter on saxophone. Adam Schatz has called it Form as a Living Organic Process. More on the shifting organic processes of democracy with our guest Nick Xenos when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Nick Xenos, author of Cloaked in Virtue, Unveiling Leo Strauss and the Rhetoric of American Foreign Policy and Scarcity and Modernity. And he's contributed essays and reviews to The Nation, Grand Street, The London Reviews, uh, London Review of Books, and other periodicals. Uh, and he also is an editor, or the editor, of Sheldon Wolin's essays in the book titled Fugitive Democracy, just out from Princeton University Press. We, uh, when we went to the break, uh, we were, uh, I guess, talking a little bit about uh, scarcity. It's a, uh, I, I guess, I would push readers to to read it because it was, it's like I said, I think it's fairly simple. It's interesting walking through those theories and and thinking about it in terms of how we imagine uh, wealth and power and how we valorize those things as well and how we see wealth and give it power and strength because it's a visible form of, uh, I guess, economics, of uh, a visible form of power that that, kind of creates its own uh, virtue. And I also liked uh, in that uh, that particular piece, you you quote, uh, again, this is Carl Menger, uh, who said, men are communists whenever possible under existing natural conditions. Communism is as naturally founded upon a non-economic relationship as property is founded upon one that is economic, which sounded kind of really damning in some ways, right? <laughs> damning economics? Yeah, well, damning of our organization, right? In the sense that yeah. uh, you think about the creation of scarcity, Right. Uh, disallows us communism in a sense, right? Disallows us uh, the c- capacity to be communal uh, because it favors the economic relationship of property. Yeah, it, well, it establishes a situation of competition. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so that we're competing over scarce resources. Um, Polanyi, Paul Polanyi would, you know, said that pre market. Uh, societies, and by that he meant societies that weren't completely organized around the market, not that didn't have any markets involved with them at all. But that pre-market societies, either the society succeeded or or starved together, the community did. Whereas in market societies, individuals uh, succeed or starve uh, themselves. So that's along the lines of what Menger was talking about. Mm. Um, yeah, that, the, the econ- we're all economists now. I mean, that's how we've learned right. to think. We've, each of us has become a maximizer of our utility. Um, we've uh, uh, mentioned before, we now, all of us, more or less, I happen to be part of a, a very privileged elite that has a defined uh, you know, r- retirement plan, defined benefit retirement plan. But most people now are on the IRAs and they're, they're their own steward, right? They're responsible for their own future right uh, and uh, and therefore they fail they marshal their resources correctly or they squandered it on something I mean when we had the financial crisis that's how it was you know people overreaching uh, in their uh, pursuit and stuff so we, that comes back to this kind of guilt that gets thrown out to individuals right um, so so that I think it's this business is by the way thanks for plugging the book uh, which is being <laughs> reissued I have to say later this year um, by Routledge, um, but the uh, uh, I, I think there is a politics, obviously, to all of this, um, and uh, it, it precludes uh, you know the the issue of, of redistribution of redistributing wealth uh, if we're all kind of scrambling after our own well-being uh, because we're in a market situation of competitive uh, action. You know, if things are scarce, we can't all get. 
everything. We can't. It's not everything. We can't get everything we want. It's the wants part of that that's the, the key. The right. Key. Well, you address that a little bit in uh, a recent essay you, you've written on austerity as well. The idea that uh, in 2008, with the financial crisis, austerity was kind of thrust upon us as mm-hmm. the uh, the management of our our desires in some sense. The management that uh, you know that we're going to have to cut back, tighten your belts. Austerity was forced upon us. But in this essay you've written, uh, you try to look at austerity a different way. Yeah. Um, so it's in some ways it's connected to the scarcity stuff, but it's uh, also in one way different. And that is, unlike scarcity, there is an old uh, tradition to the notion of the austere or austerity, um, and it goes back uh, you, in Western tradition. You could say it goes back to Socrates, but certainly to the Stoics, the Roman Stoics. Uh, it takes on and it has become a negative category, right? We're all now subject to austerity. Um, rules and uh, the imposition of a of austerity meaning that everyone has to not everyone people who are the subject of these uh, rules and um, have to suffer and and in some ways we're suffering but but what I tried to do in that essay uh, speculatively again was to try to resurrect this notion of what an austere life means um, it doesn't necessarily mean a life of of deprivation. If we think about the austere or austerity as a as an aesthetic category, I think it helps. So we'll say a, a landscape, say Iceland's landscape, is an austere one, or uh, the um, modernist architecture is austere. We mean it's absent of, uh, in the second case, ornamentation, or in the first case, it's sort of a a kind of minimal uh, landscape one way or the other, and kind of, um, you know, guess without a whole lot of distraction. And so uh, what I was trying to say there is that what it, the notion of an austere life in those terms is one that puts some limits on one's own acquisition of, of, ornament, of, of ornamentation, if you want to put it that way, mm-hmm. that reduces, and it's tied to the scarcity thing negatively in this way, uh, the old idea of the Stoics was the less you dependent on external things, the better. You become more autonomous in some way, or more dependent only upon your yourself. I think there's a way in which austerity can be, or the austere could be mobilized politically. I don't think it's, well, I think it can be mobilized politically, um, but I think it's really difficult to do it. What I want to say about mobilizing it politically is to mobilize the frustration, hostility that common people felt to extravagant displays of wealth before the, before the financial crisis and since. I mean, we have this radically uh, growing separation of rich and poor. And um, it, the, the austere life can be a challenge to that kind of um, uh, growth of, of uh, inequality, you know, I think. And the, the figure who I think has actually articulated this is the Pope. Hmm. I mean, I think the Pope is talking about a, a world in which, or a society in which we become dependent on things, on the accumulation of more things, on our appearance, you know, uh, through our things to other people, and that this is stoked and promoted by financial elites, uh, commercial elites of various kinds who, who want us to keep accumulating one way or the other. 
the 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 op the opposition to that is simplifying. Now I think that there's in popular culture these days there is this effort to towards a kind of so-called so new minimalism, but it's thought of as an individual thing. I'm going to you know get rid of a lot of my possessions. I'm going to sort of simplify my life because I think people, a lot of people feel overburdened either with the, their stuff or overburdened by the desire to acquire more stuff. But that individual ethic, if we go back to the individual responsibility, is not going to solve a social problem. Mm, right. <laughs> it has to be a collective understanding of uh, of uh, reduction right. in material demand or well, you demand have to, for uh, objects. You'll have to also shift your interest in this world, right? Shift your world into the people, the humans that live around you. I think that we could easily in this country turn to Thoreau for these, you know, for these very same issues, right? Obviously, a great reader of the Stoics as well. Uh, you know, he said his your house really only needed to be the size of a coffin, basically, to 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 take care of yourself. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot in the in, in American tradition actually that would that is beneficial to this thing, and a lot in the Catholic tradition mm -hmm. that as articulated by this particular pope. There's a long tradition of this kind of thinking um, that's been in some ways subverted by the by the deployment of the term of reducing uh, your material world as a, as a punishment as opposed to a right, choice right 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 well, let's uh, let's end it there. I think that's a good good place to try to end philosophically on the idea that we we can make these choices and we don't have to live in this commercial world the way we're doing so far. And austerity doesn't need to be a punishment, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight against those people who are enforcing these particular rules on us. Absolutely. Uh, that's our show. Uh, we'll close with Black Comedy, written by drummer Tony Williams off of the 1968 album Miles in the Sky. Thanks to Nicholas Xenos for sharing his time and his insights on our current political situation. Xenos is professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and director of the Amherst Program in Critical Theory. He's author of Scarcity and Modernity, which, as he said, is being reissued by, I forget what you said, Nick, was it Rutledge? Yeah, Rutledge. Rutledge. Uh, and he is uh, the editor of a volume of Sheldon Wolin's essays, Fugitive Democracy, just out from Princeton University Press. Thanks so much for your time today, Nick. Thank you. Thank you.